Sabbath. The law does not allow you to carry that sleeping mat. But he replied, the man who healed me told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who said such a thing as that? They demanded. The man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. But afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, now you are well, stop sinning or something even worse may happen to you. Then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. So the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. But Jesus replied, my father is always working and so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his father, thereby making himself equal with God. You may be seated. Thank you, Brent. Good morning. How are we doing? Man, it's good to see you guys. It still is such a cool feeling to be able to be here together in this room uh, all together. So thank you for being here. Um, we are starting today a new series of messages that will lead us all the way to Easter. So that's seven, seven more weeks until Easter, by the way. And uh, this series that we're doing is called The Jesus Way. And what we mean by that is pretty simple. We want to do things the way Jesus would do them. We, we want to do it the Jesus way. We want to be more like Jesus. And, you know, we, we talk about this often around here, but it's worth bringing up again that I think sometimes if we're not careful, it's easy to think about, you know, God as far as Heavenly Father God, off in the distance somewhere, or we think about Jesus as a baby at Christmas, or we think about Christianity in terms of values or morals. But a lot of times we kind of accidentally skip over the fact that Jesus was a real person, a human being who lived on this earth. And John, uh, at the beginning of his gospel, said it this way. John said, the word, talking about Jesus, the word became flesh. And that's really important. I mean, it's very important. It's it's foundational to the Christian faith. That that Christianity is the only religion where God became like us. In every other major religion, man is figures out some way to transcend, to become like God. But in Christianity, God, who was already God, decided to become like man. God became a man. He became flesh. And so our faith, if you are here today and you're a Christian, your faith is not just about beliefs or thoughts or philosophies. We have a flesh and bone example of what God would live like in all the ex- like circumstances that we find ourselves in. Let me say that again. In Jesus, we have a flesh and bone example of what God would live like in all of the different circumstances that we find ourselves in. And so the goal of Christianity is not enlightenment, it's not zen or transcendence. We are not angels, we are human beings. And Jesus was a human being, which means in order to be like Jesus, we've got to figure out how to make our Christianity fit with our humanity. We've got to figure out how to be human beings who love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Christianity is just 
as much about being on earth as it is about being in heaven. Jesus told us to pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That somehow, some way, this faith that we have is supposed to work here, just like it's going to work there. And so faith in Jesus should make me look more like Jesus. This is our big idea for these next seven weeks, the Jesus way, that faith in Jesus, and maybe you're here and maybe you don't have that. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian, and that's okay. You're welcome here. We love that you're here. But for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, our faith in Jesus should make us look more like Jesus. It doesn't get any simpler than that. So over these next seven weeks, we're going to look at seven things that Jesus did And we're praying and hoping and asking him to help us do them too. Seven things Jesus did, the way Jesus did them, and we want to do them too. And of course, Jesus did more than seven things. I'm sure you know that. Uh, John also said in his gospel, he said, if I wrote down everything Jesus did and taught, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to fill them. You know, so, so he did a lot more than seven things, okay? So we're not saying this is all Jesus did, but these are some of the things that were important to him and they should be important to us. Are you with me? Okay, so we're doing the Jesus way and seven things Jesus did. So this week, we're starting this very first week with confronting religion. If we're going to be more like Jesus, we have to confront religion. Because this is what Jesus did. This is Jesus' way. And to get started, um, right at the beginning, I need to clarify what I mean by religion because religion kind of has two definitions, and most of the time when people say, I'm not religious, they are using it wrong. They're saying it incorrectly. And so I want to kind of define what I mean by religion. Religion in the general sense is a specific set of organized beliefs and practices usually shared by a group. This is like a, this is the dictionary definition of religion. Religion is, you know, practices and beliefs that are shared by by a group. So Christianity is a religion, Islam is a religion, so on. We can, there, there are these major religions that, that people have. They share beliefs as a group. And according to the latest research, over 25% of Americans, this number has skyrocketed in the last two decades, that over 25% of Americans claim to be spiritual but not religious. I'm spiritual but I'm not religious. What do they mean by that? Well, Usually they just mean that they believe in God, but they don't go to church, is usually kind of the general sense of that. But in a a larger sense, what they're trying to say is that they believe in Jesus, but not all the other stuff that goes with it. I believe in Jesus, I believe in God, but not all the other stuff that goes with it. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And maybe you feel that way. Maybe you're here today in church and you feel that way. Somebody you know, invited you to come and you're here and you're skeptical and you're cynical because you're like, I mean, I'm fine with Jesus, but it's all the other stuff I'm not sure about. I get that. And overwhelmingly, for the 25% of people who say this, and maybe you're part of that 25% today, overwhelmingly, the reason that they feel this way is because of a bad religious experience. We would call this maybe church hurt. Maybe it was a church or a pastor or a family member who was a Christian or claimed to be a Christian, but then because of the way that they acted or what they did to you or how they treated other people, it skewed kind of your view of everything and it gave you a negative view of, uh, of religion. 
And so, and so in that sense, religion has another, or has a, has a um, it's this idea of a group of people coming together around a common goal, and I don't want anything to do with that because I know what those groups of people are like, and I don't want anything to do with that. But there's, there's a more specific definition of religion, and I want to give you that one. And this is one I kind of paraphrased a little bit. You can find a couple of these in the dictionary, but I kind of paraphrased these together. And this is really more so what people usually mean by religion. Religion is when you claim to be spiritual but don't have the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, you with me? So the, so the dictionary definition is beliefs, group of people, together. But most of the time when people say, you're so religious or I'm not religious, what they're saying is, I'm not like those people that I know who claim to be Christians but don't in any way act like Christ. Are you with me on that? You following what I'm saying? Okay. And this is what Jesus said in, in, in Matthew talking to people that the Bible just calls religious leaders. And he says, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites? You are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy. This is, this is that second definition of religion that we're talking about today. This is what we have to confront today, is that idea of someone who is so focused on their outward behavior, but on the inside they're filthy. And so Jesus, in other words, is saying, you change what you do, but you've never changed who you are. You've come to church, you've given your life to Jesus, you've prayed a prayer, you've joined a group, you tithe, you do these things, and so you do them. You're, you're active, but you've never changed who you are on, on the inside. You're filthy. And if we're being honest, a lot of us would say that we've experienced this firsthand. We were turned off to Jesus by people who claimed to be Christians but were nasty, mean, or nasty, perverted, or they stole from you, or they lied to you, or they judged you, or they were always telling you what you do is wrong, but nothing they ever did was wrong. Have you ever met anybody like that? Come on, show of hands. This is a safe place. Come on, throw your hand up. Yeah, 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 yeah. You met somebody like that? Well, this is what I mean by confronting religion. This is what I mean. That if we're going to be like Jesus, there is a part of our lives that requires us to confront this. Because Jesus was only ever confrontational with one group of people. If you've ever read the Gospels, you know that he was only ever confrontational with one group of people. And it wasn't the prostitutes. And it wasn't the tax collectors. And it wasn't the homosexuals. And it wasn't the soldiers. The only people he, he taught to everybody. But the only people he was ever confrontational with. Religious people. Religious people. So if I want to be like Jesus, I need to assess where I'm directing all of my confrontational energy. Because I, I have confrontational energy I am, I'm sending out. Everybody in this room, you've got some confrontational energy that you are using you know, maybe it's against your kids' teachers or the refs at your kids' games or politic discussions or, you know, the person on the internet tech helpline. You've got some confrontational energy. But only G Jesus only ever used the confrontational energy towards religious people. 
And they killed him for it. Just heads up. It's kind of a spoiler. That they killed him for it. It wasn't the prostitutes who killed him. It wasn't the tax collectors or the homosexuals. I mean, technically it was the soldiers, but they were under direction from the religious leaders. I want you to wrap your mind around that for a second because we know the story. We've been to the Easter productions and the plays. We've watched The Chosen. We know how this is going. But I want you, to, like we rush past that, I want you to just comprehend for a second that it was the people who knew the Bible the best. They had more memorized. These were the people that followed all of the rules that always went to the temple. These were the tithers. These were those that were like, they did everything the right way. Their actions were impeccable. Those are the people who killed Jesus. Killed him. And in our verses today, we read one of the most bizarre and infuriating stories from the Gospels. Jesus heals a man who has been paralyzed for 38 years, to which we would assume that all the Christians would be ecstatic. Are you kidding? But no. No. At the very end of the story, Brent's read us, we read that the religious leaders were so offended that they started harassing Jesus and started trying to figure out ways to kill him. To which we say, what? What? Why were they so angry? What did Jesus do that made them so angry? Well, it wasn't that he healed them, even though that bothered them. Because they wanted to know where did he get the power to do that. But it wasn't even that he healed him. It was that after he healed them, healed the man, he told the man, pick up your mat and carry it and walk. Because you haven't walked in 38 years. So, so get up and walk and take your mat with you. But this happened on the Sabbath. And according to the letter of the law, you are not allowed to do any work on the Sabbath. Which means that includes carrying your mat. Can't carry mat. So, for of all the laws, 613 commands in the Old Testament, of all the commands, of all the laws that the religious people took most seriously, it was the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the day of rest. It goes back to God using six days to create and the seventh day he rested. And it's what he told the people, if you were here for the Exodus series, it's what he told the people coming out of Egypt. And so, and so he establishes the Sabbath. And so for the religious leaders, this is the, of all the rules, this is the rule. Of all the commands, this is the command. And so what they did is they spent exorbitant amount of energy trying to figure out what did God mean exactly by work? Because you can't work on the Sabbath. So what did God mean exactly? Because he just said, don't work on the Sabbath. He didn't give them a list of things you couldn't do. He said, don't work. So the religious leaders, they're getting together and they're expending all this energy trying to figure out technically exactly what does it mean not to work on the Sabbath? Because we don't want to break the rules. But here's what they found, and you'll find this too if you ever try to get really technical with obedience, is that they were bumping into all of the things that they wanted to do but weren't allowed to do, so they had to move the pieces around so they could do the things they wanted to do without breaking the rules, right? So I'll give you a couple of examples. This is so funny. So like one of the things that they decided, this was not in the Bible, this is one of the things that the religious leaders, how they were interpreting the Bible, they said, for example, that you can't carry something on the Sabbath because that would be considered work, so you can't carry it. But if you could wear it, you could carry it. So you couldn't hold it in your hand, but if you could put it around your neck, you're okay. But now you can't carry it. 
Or another funny one, uh, historically, they said is that, like, back in that day, if anybody had a toothache, they would use vinegar, and that's how they, that was the remedy they would use for a toothache. But, but on the Sabbath, you can't take vinegar and rub it on your teeth, because that would be work. But if you put enough on your food, that when you put the food in your mouth and you rubbed it against your teeth, well, now you're just eating, you're not working. So that would be okay, but you can't rub it on there with your finger. That would be breaking the Sabbath. There was, a, there was another rule that they had, not in the Bible, just in how they were trying to apply the Bible, where they said that, um, you, like, how far could you walk away from your house? Because, you know, that's work, you know. And, and so how far could you go? And they came up with the arbitrary number of 1,000 yards. According to the Old Testament Pharisees, you could not go more than 1,000 yards from your house because that 1,001 yards, that would be work. But they had places they needed to go and and people they needed to see. So they also decided that if you took your own food to a certain residence on Friday or Saturday, you could also declare that your home. It's a true story. So if they had somewhere they needed to be on the Sabbath, on Friday, they would get some food and they would go 1,050 yards away and they would put food in that house and they would say, well, that's also one of my residences so that they could go another 1,000 yards. Are you following me? So here they are, these guys who put vinegar on their food and designate other residences to be able to obey without disobeying, but to do what they want to do, but to think they're pleasing God, but to really do what they want to do. And they're looking at a man who was paralyzed for 38 years and he had just been healed, and they are furious because by obeying Jesus, they said he was disobeying the Bible. And Charles Swindoll gives a a phenomenal analogy of this. He says, imagine that you are uh, sleeping on a Saturday morning and you're awoke, you, you, know, you wake up at like 6 a.m. because your neighbor's running like a chainsaw or a lawnmower that's really loud and it wakes you up. But you're confused because you, you know that your neighbor has been paralyzed from the waist down their entire life, as long as you've known them. And you look outside your window and you see that your neighbor is now pushing the lawnmower and he's not paralyzed anymore. He's been healed. He said, everybody in their right mind would run out the front door 6 a.m. You would give your neighbor a hug and say, oh, my gosh, you're not paralyzed anymore. This is so amazing. He said, but the religious leaders would say, what are you doing? You woke me up. This is the difference. So here in our story, we see what happens to people who spend their entire life trying to obey the law but miss the spirit of the law. These are people who want to please God but have probably never actually met God, right? And it turns out that trying to be good for God without actually having the spirit of God doesn't make life better. It makes life much worse. This is what Ezekiel described in Ezekiel chapter 36, that when we become Christians, it says that that in this supernatural conversion, that God takes our stony, stubborn hearts and he replaces it with a soft heart filled with the Spirit of God that desires to obey God's commands. Right? This is the conversion that happens. But if you never are converted, but then try to obey God with a stony, stubborn heart, you can do pretty good at it. But you don't have the Spirit of God the fruit of the Spirit in your life, and it doesn't make life better. It makes life much much worse. 
One of my, one of my all-time favorite C.S. Lewis quotes is he said, if the divine doesn't make us better, it will make us very much worse. Of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst. And I think everybody's like, yeah, that's pretty accurate. Even some of you today, you would say like, I get along better with the non-Christians that I work with than most of the Christians that I know, right? And so here we are, you know, a couple minutes, more than a couple minutes into the sermon, and I can just feel, I can feel you guys. You're like, yes, get them, Jason. Beat them up. Yes, Jason, go. Love this. I wish my grandmother was here. I wish my uncle was here. I wish my boss was here. I wish my neighbor was here. Oh, yeah, go. So I got to stop for a second. And I need to clarify something really, really important because I know that, like, we're all in the room saying, yes, tell those religious people I'm not religious. I love that about Hope City. It's not religious. And what we mean is we kind of assume that anything that is more structured or formal or important than I like is religious. Right? So just because there's guidelines or rules doesn't mean it's religious. So I actually put together a list. This is me. I made this up. They're going to throw it up on the screen for you. But I want to kind of give you just a little bit of list so that you can see the difference between a religious spirit and not a religious spirit. And again, I just made this up. This is my list. But I think it's important because especially for those of us who are younger, it's as true for everybody, but especially those younger, and I'm talking to the students and the college students, and I don't know the names of the generations anymore, but the younger ones, you know what I'm talking about? We have to be careful because a religious spirit is this feeling of self-importance, but it's not authority or authority figures. Like just because there, are, there is authority doesn't mean that an institution is religious. It just means that there's established authority. So just because you have someone who's in charge doesn't mean like it's so religious, right? Or like a religious spirit is critical. I know I'm right. I see the world. My opinion's right. I know I'm right. But that's not the same thing as concern, which is I'm concerned about what I'm seeing in your life. And I hope I'm wrong. That's the difference between critical and concern. Critical says, I know I'm right. Concern says, I hope I'm wrong, but I'm concerned. I'm seeing some things and I'm concerned. That person's not being religious. They're being concerned. Is this making sense to everybody? A religious spirit is judgmental. I'm looking, I'm looking down at what you're doing and making judgments, but that's not the same thing as accountability. For somebody to call you higher, for somebody to see potential into you and want you to eliminate the things in your life that maybe are holding you back and wanting to call you higher or setting some standards for you, and we'll talk about that in a second, and then holding you to them. That's not religious. A religious spirit is legalistic. What does that mean? That just means like that you are, that your acceptance to God is based on behavior. So it's very legalistic. Thank God we're not maybe potentially as legalistic as some of the previous generations, but we still have a lot of man-made rules that we think are the most important things. But that's not the same thing as standards and expectations. Just because you're part of a church or you're part of a small group or, you know, different things, and people say, hey, here are our standards for doing something or being in something or leading something, that doesn't mean they're being religious. It just means that there are expectations and standards. A religious spirit is unwilling to change. But that doesn't mean that anything that is routine or ordinary or normal or predictable is somehow religious. And so a lot of these, all of them, have to do with our hearts. 
right? And so based on this list, and leave this list up here for me, guys, but based on this list, let me ask you a question. You ever feel self-important? You ever feel critical? You ever feel judgmental? You ever legalistic? How willing are you to change? Ah, we get to the heart of the matter. That if we're going to confront religion, we've got to start in the mirror. We can't start with those religious people. We've got to start with the man in the mirror. Yes, there are religious people who do great harm to Christianity. But I've done harm to Christianity too. And I have to start by admitting that I'm much more religious than I think, and you are too. And we don't mean to be, but most of us were taught what we should do and what we shouldn't do long before we were taught what Jesus did. And our parents meant, meant well, and I, do it, I did it to my kids, but we pick the behaviors that we want our kids to have, and then we say, well, that's what God would want. Before, long before they know what Jesus did. And the great preacher Charles Spurgeon described it this way. He said, beloved, the legalist in us, the religious in us, is a great deal older than the Christian. If I were a legalist today, I should be some 15 or 16 years older than I am as a Christian. For we are born legalists. So how does it happen? How do we become people who claim to be Christians but have no love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control? How do we become judgmental and critical and mean and feel like we're superior to everyone else? How do we become religious but not like Jesus? Boy, it's so subtle, it's almost impossible to spot, which is why it's so dangerous. Please hear that. The, the reason that it's so hard to confront religion in ourselves is because it's so subtle. And it really comes down to one thing. We stop believing in grace. We stop believing in grace. What does that mean? Well, there, there are two ways to think about grace. One way to think about grace is it's like the carpet cleaner that you use when your dog pees on the carpet. There's a stain. Y'all's dog pee on the carpet, but it's just mine, okay. But there's a stain, and you spray it, and you scrub it. And if you do it soon enough and early enough and hard enough, the stain will come out. And so you messed up and you need God to give you grace. And if you go to him early enough and quick enough and mean it enough, then the stain will come out. But that's not what grace is. Grace literally means goodwill. It's cooperation. That goodwill idea comes from a business term, an acquisition, that when someone's going to purchase you, they act in goodwill towards you. They mean what they say. They're going to do what they say they're going to do. They're going to treat you with dignity. They're going to treat you with respect. You can trust them as they are acquiring you and you're letting them in to see your books and know how your business runs. They are operating in goodwill. This is where we get this idea. And this is a picture of grace. So we should think about grace more as the way that God is acting towards us not so much something that he does or gives us when we make a mistake. We are saved, Ephesians says, by grace 
And, and, and that, that doesn't mean we're saved by carpet cleaner. That means we're saved by the cooperation and the goodwill of God. Right? Now, why would he do that? That's the best question. Why would God have goodwill towards us? Why would God treat us in cooperation and, and kindness and love and dignity? Well, I want to show you this. And Keegan, if you'll come up and help me. And Bob, if you'll come up and help me. I promise I'm not going to spray you, but come on up here. So you can just stand right here. So Keegan represents you and me, all right? Keegan, Keegan represents, your mom said I need to spray you a little bit. Okay. Keegan represents you and me. And so when we sin and we struggle and we have this idea, this kind of old, old concept that grace is a spray bottle. I don't know how to use one of these, obviously. There we go. Grace is a spray bottle. Oh, God, I made a mistake. Need a little bit. Oh, shouldn't have said that. Need a little bit. Just lusted. Sorry, God. Said a cuss word in traffic. My bad. Grace. If we think of grace like this, then, then we assume that either God is getting frustrated about how much he's having to use, or if we have a really bad week, how much is in there? You know what I mean? This is not what grace is. Grace is goodwill and cooperation. And the reason that God has goodwill towards us and cooperates with us is because of a person. Not a, not a, not a quantity of a thing, but a person. Bob represents Jesus Christ. Turn this way for me, Keegan. No, towards me. Bob, if you'll turn towards me. Towards you. Yeah, towards me, right there. When Ephesians says that I am saved by, it doesn't mean I'm saved because I timed it right and I got a little spray. It means that I'm saved by the goodwill of God and the way that God is willing to cooperate with me. Well, how do I get that goodwill? How do I cooperate? What do I do in order to get the goodwill of God and the cooperation of God? The Bible tells us that I believe in Jesus. I put my faith in Jesus Christ. Bob represents Jesus. And, and to be a Christian means that I believe that Jesus came, God in the flesh, was born, lived a perfect life, did not deserve to die, went to the cross and was punished and died a sinner's death and took on all of my sins took it on his back and his shoulders, died on the cross, rose from the dead, spent about 40 more days with the disciples and then went back to God and he sits at the right hand. The Bible says he sits somehow, we don't know how this works, but he sits beside God and he just intercedes on my behalf. He just, he just goes to God on my behalf. So why would God give me goodwill? Why would God cooperate with me? Because every time God looks at me, what does he see? Jesus. Because I get credit for the life of Jesus because Jesus took credit for my life. Are you with me? Give them a hand. They can sit down. Thank you, sir. I'm going to call you back up in a second, in a little bit. Now, why did I take all the time to describe that to you? What does it have to do with confronting religion? Well, it has everything to do with confronting religion. 
Because religion is based on the fear that God won't love me or won't accept me or will reject me. And so I begin to believe that it's my responsibility to make sure that God doesn't run out of grace in his bottle for me. I know I've come a lot, God. I know I've had to forgive, you know, ask for forgiveness a lot. I know I've made a lot of mistakes. I know I've let you down. And so if I believe that my relationship with God is based on the quantity of grace that he will give me when I fail, then I will live my life terrified of failing. But if I believe that God has saved me and accepts me and loves me and cooperates with me because of what Jesus did, I can't mess that up. It's already done. Jesus already did it. I already did it. I already have it, so I don't have to earn it. But if I don't believe I already have it, guess what I've got to do? Earn it over and over and over and over again. I did pretty good yesterday, but I mean, new day. New day. And so watch what happens. We, nobody wants to be the person who can't celebrate the, the paralyzed man being healed after 38 years But when I start feeling as if God accepts me or rejects me based on the last thing that I did, then I have to start creating rules that help me feel more secure. You following what I'm saying? I mean, nobody can live that fickle of a life. So I've got to figure out all of the religious rules that I need to obey so that God accepts me. I'm always going to slant the list in my direction. And I'm going to walk around with that list and I'm going to hold it up and I'm going to judge everybody else's life and see, is God accepting them or rejecting them? You don't better not do that. God's going to be mad at you about that. Don't do that. And I'm living in fear. When I stop believing that what Jesus did is enough, I start trying to be enough. And that makes you a miserable person. Everybody look at me. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, and what he did on the cross, then you are already saved, you are already justified, you are already accepted, you are already loved by God. No matter how much you fail today, no matter how much you succeed today, it does not change the way God feels about you. But you will not feel that way if you trust in yourself. What I just said will feel like the most ridiculous thing that could ever be said if your trust is in yourself. And so we come back to what it means to be a Christian. We come back to what it means to be a Christian. That tomorrow morning, when I wake up, I've got to decide, am I trusting in Jesus today or am I trusting in myself? Am I accepted and loved by God because of what I do or am I accepted today and loved by God because of what Jesus did? When I parent my kids today, is all of my trust in myself or is all of my trust in Jesus? When I go to my job, when people upset me, when I'm tempted to do things I swore I would never do again, when I succeed and when I fail, when people brag on me and when people criticize me, am I trusting in myself or am I trusting in Jesus? Jesus told a story. We'll we'll come to the end here, but. Jesus told a parable. He's just constantly confronting this idea that we all feel. Luke 18, Jesus tells this story. And this is what it says in verse 9. It says, then Jesus told this story to some who had great 
confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. They're trusting in their self. It says two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. The other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like the other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like the tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. In other words, what he's saying is, God, you haven't had to use that bottle in a long time on me. How proud are you of me right now? How, 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 how awesome am I, God? Thank you so much that you have given me the ability to not do any of those bad things other people do. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh, God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, the sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. See, the religious person always thinks they need less grace than other people. But the Christian knows they have nothing to count on but grace. I go to God and I don't have anything to be proud of in my behavior. I go to God and I say, God, it's only because of grace. It's only because of Jesus. And this allows me to give grace to others because I give grace to myself because I know the truth about me. It allows me to give grace to them. This past week, we had a little bit of a blow up in the Isaacs household. We're at an age where the girls are wearing the same size clothes. So I don't know if you've ever parented teenage girls, but it's a battle in the, in the clothes department when they start sharing. And so, you know, there's fights like most days, you know, what'd you wear? You didn't ask me this or that or whatever. But the other day we had a big one. And so uh, Nora walks in from school and Sadie, I told her I was going to tell this story. She's like, oh my gosh, dad. Nora walks in, first thing Sadie says, uh, what sweatshirt are you wearing? And Nora's has her backpack covering the sweatshirt because she knows, you know. Nora's like, I asked you, I asked you if I could wear it. Sadie said, you did not. Nora said, yes, I did. You were in the shower last night, and I knocked on the door, and I said, hey, Sadie, can I wear your sweatshirt? And I don't think you heard me, and you didn't say anything back, so I just assumed you meant yes. I like it. I like it. And Sadie's like, I never said yes. That's like my favorite sweatshirt. Now it's going to smell and I can't wear it. And then we just, and now we're, now it's full on battle. I'm cooking dinner. I'm trying my best to just get everybody to the table, you know. This goes on for 10, 15 minutes. I mean, now we're arguing about anything that anyone's ever done. And uh, finally, about 15 minutes later, we're, we're landing the plane and forgiveness is being given to some extent and truces are being made. And we finally get done with all of it. Sadie's made her point. Nora is, you know, uh, apologetic. Sadie has stood her ground and she has won the fight. And we get done and we're about to eat dinner. And Nora says, Sadie, what sweatpants are you wearing? For 15 minutes, we are fighting. And, you know, they live with a preacher. I said, the greatest sermon illustration. I'm totally stealing that. Here's my point. When I realize I'm the kind of person who also takes other people's stuff, 
I'm more gracious when people take my stuff. When I realize that I'm a sinner that can never live up to God's standard and it's only through Jesus, then I am so much more understanding of people who cannot live up to God's standard and who can only be saved through Jesus Christ. Jesus never tried to earn God's approval because he already knew he had it. And listen, I want to be more like Jesus. This is the Jesus way. I want to sniff it out in me. When I'm feeling ashamed or judgmental, it can only end one of two ways. Either you get really good at perfecting your list and you look down on everyone else, or you never are able to perfect your list and you're so ashamed of who you are and what you've done. And then you become hypocritical because you don't want people to know the truth about you. And so when I start feeling proud of my behavior or I start feeling ashamed of my behavior, I've got to remember that it's not, I'm not accepted or rejected based on what I do or what I don't do. I'm accepted because of Jesus. So Bob, come on one more time up here. Keegan, come on one more time up here. I want you to get this in your head. We'll face the crowd this time so they can see it a little bit better. Put that on. Come on, Keegan. Stand right here for me, Bob. Jesus, Keegan, you're us. You stand right here. Listen, when God looks at you, this is what he sees. This is not, this is not what it means to get grace. This is what it means to get grace. Are you with me? So I woke up this morning. I woke up this morning and I was thinking about this and I just started thinking, uh, and I don't have it memorized, I had to Google it, but I started thinking about all these Bible verses. Ephesians 2.8, God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. Romans 5.20, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were, but as people sin more and more, God's wonderful grace was more abundant. So just as sin ruled over people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful Grace rules instead of no spray bottle. Romans 6, 14, sin is no longer your master for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. John 1, 16 through 17, out of his fullness, we have all received grace. We've all received grace in place of grace already given for the law was given through Moses, but Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Can I give you one more? Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. Then we will receive mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. I want you to get this in your head and I'm gonna pray and we're gonna be done. Tomorrow when you struggle, tomorrow when you yell at your kids, tomorrow when you think lustful thoughts, tomorrow when you fill in the blank, whatever it is that you do and you hate that you do it and you wish you never did it again, you're tempted to think either, well, I need to lie about it because I don't want God to be mad at me and everybody else to be mad at me. Or you're tempted to think, I'm such a loser. I'm not even really a Christian. God could never love me. I'm such a terrible person. Listen, that all, none of those things have anything to do with how God feels about you. So tomorrow when you're down on yourself or you're high on yourself, I want you to remember that when God looks at you, he does not see the things that you do. He sees what Jesus did. He sees what Jesus did. He sees what Jesus did. You either need to cut yourself a break or you need to cut everybody else a break. Thank you, guys. You can be seated. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to take communion. And... Um, Today, as we take communion, 
man, what an opportunity to break the bread of Jesus, dip it in that juice, and remember, this is why I'm accepted by God. This is why I'm loved by God. This is why Jesus sees, God sees me as perfect. This is why I'm a beauty to God, because of what Jesus did, not what I do. Now, some of you have already bowed your heads, but look at me real quick, because i got to tell you this logistically. We're new in this building, so we're trying to figure out how to do communion the right way, so we're trying something new today, okay? There's going to be a table right here, and there's going to be a table right there. There's just two tables, and we're trying to figure out the traffic flow, because we're also having prayer going on. We're figuring it out. So we're just asking everybody to either get to this aisle or to get to this aisle, and we'll see how it goes, and we may make changes next week, okay? This aisle or this aisle. And at the same time, prayer workers will be down here, and you can come and pray. And listen, maybe, I don't know how many prayer workers we got, but I bet there's a lot of people who need to come forward for prayer today and say, I just need help believing that God's not holding everything against me, but that I get credit for, for Jesus' life. I want to trust in Jesus tomorrow. I want to trust in Jesus, not in myself. I want to trust in Jesus, not in myself. I need help remembering that that is the Christian life, trusting in Jesus. So I'm going to pray for us. The communion tables will be set up. The prayer volunteers are going to come down. There will be an opportunity for you to pray. And also we have, if you are not able to get down front, we have people walking around who will bring you the communion elements so that you can take those if you can't get down front. If you can get down front, go down front. Don't be getting the service brought to you. But if you can't, then we want to bring it to you, okay? I want to pray for us. Let's pray. God, we say it every week, God, but maybe now today it feels a little bit different. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you, God, that you don't accept me or reject me based on my behavior. Thank you, God, that I do not have to live in fear of letting you down because Jesus Christ came and took credit for my life. And so, God, when I say I believe in Jesus, I'm not just saying I know facts about Jesus. I'm saying I believe that it's true. I believe that that's why I'm saved. I believe that's why you love me. I believe that's why you accept me. And, God, I pray that you would help me to trust in that. When all of the emotions start coming at me, I pray you would help me to trust in that. When the shame and the guilt and the pride start coming at me, help me to trust in that. Let me trust in Jesus, not in myself. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen.